Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Um, if you don't know me, and a lot of you don't, my name is Adam. Um, my wife, Nicole, and I and our kids have been members here for about a year. And uh, I'm just so excited to be here to share God's word. I appreciate Brandon inviting me to do so today. And, um, and with that, I just want to make the... The clarifying statement for anyone maybe watching online, or maybe you're a guest, I'm not one of the elders or pastors here, so judge accordingly, and make sure you check in next week for one of the pastor's sermons, okay? Um, I do want to give a shout out to my daughter, Zoe, who made it her mission in life to be in here today. Zoe, are you still back there? Hey, I love you. Um, she thought I was going to sing, and I will spare all of us of that. Um, if you have your Bibles um, or your devices or however you access God's word, if you would join me by turning to the book of Ephesians. We'll continue our sermon series in Ephesians today. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be starting in verse 17. So if you want to be finding that, if you don't have a Bible, um, there are some on the high tops in the back of the, uh, the room here. You're welcome to take one. Use it today. Take it home with you. If you don't have a copy of God's word, as sort of a gift from the church to you. Um, so as you're turning there, or as you're scrolling there, um, who all does have their smartphone with them today? Like all of us, we all have our smartphones. Um, it's like this beloved pet that we can't leave home without, you know? Like every, um, all of us had that math teacher that was like, hey, you're not always going to have, you know, a calculator with you in your pocket. And like, of course, jokes on them because we all do. Um, but with that, of course, maybe comes the realization that maybe we are losing some skills, right? Like I can't do math. I was never good at it, but now like I really can't do it. Like I'm going to open that app and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to access the answer that way. Um, so with that, down, or represents maybe the downside of all this technology, you know, the ease of access to all of these things. And, and then there's, there's social media and things like that that we can really lament the negative impacts they have on us personally, socially, societally. And then there are like bigger issues we could talk about as we think about the rise of stronger AI systems and a lot of ethical questions get asked about, hey, what does this mean for working people? and how these jobs automate and take away jobs from actual people in favor of a computer doing it. Or maybe even bigger, more Skynet-y kind of concerns, you know? And that's all valid, that's all real, like we can talk about that. We can talk about the downside of technology all day long, but not right now. Because I wanna talk about one of God's greatest gifts to us, and it came as a result of the internet, and it's called the meme, okay? Can we all just stop and thank God for internet memes for like just a minute? I love internet memes. Um, I have one I want to show you today. I think it'll be on the screen. Thank you, Stephen. Um, so here we have Donald Duck as he is sleeping soundly, but then dramatically awakened, and he's perturbed because he remembers something he did in 2008 that was really awkward. Anybody relate to that? Like, this was so relatable to me, right? Because there are so many things that, I, that, ha that happens to me, okay? Whether I'm sleeping at night and I wake up, I'm like, oh, I can't believe I did that when I was in middle school, or like, I can't believe I did that when I was in college. And like, we all have those things. Why? Because we're all embarrassed by who we used to be. We've all matured past it, hopefully. And I'm sure in 15 years, I'm going to look back to that Sunday where I talked about memes and just cringe and just say, I can't believe I did that. But the funny thing is that most people don't really remember those things that I'm embarrassed about. A lot of people that are in my life now, a lot of the places that I frequent now have nothing to do with what I was doing in 2008. But I still remember it, and I will always remember it. 
You have things like that, things that you've grown up and matured past. You're not that person anymore. Thank God. So in Ephesians, Paul does this thing more than once where he considers Christ's intervention in the lives of God's people as something of a major turning point in their personal stories. It's sort of this like BC versus AD kind of thing, if you will. Before Christ, this was your situation. You were such and such. Now in Christ, things are different. Before Christ, things were, were bad. Things were ugly. Things were not as good as they are now because in Christ, you are made new. In Christ, you have this new life. And so today we're going to see this framed as the old self versus the new self. So keep, keep, pay attention to those terms, old self, new self, that's going to pop up a lot. Interestingly, Paul sees the need to point this reality out to his audience in this letter more than once. You're not who you used to be. You were this, now you're not. Why does he need to keep bringing it up? Why do we need to keep revisiting this idea? Well, it's because we are so prone to live as though that divine intervention that was supposed to be so life-changing never happened. We're called back to the old way of life. We don't cringe enough at the sin in our past, but instead we want to return to it. And in doing so, I think we fail to demonstrate the maturity that Christ made possible when he gave us this new life. And that, of course, impacts our personal walks with him, right? Allowing sin to come in, allowing us to go back to the old self. That impacts our relationship with God, but we're going to see it also impacts our relationship amongst one another as the church. And really it has reaching implications as we think about our call to go to the nations, and our call to love the world and those in it who need Jesus. And Paul urges us to live up to what God has done for us. So if you have your Bibles, like I said, if you would join me as we read from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Here's what we see. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with your neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, being on, doing an honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Most gracious Lord, we thank you for this day. We pray that in it, Lord, we would consider the words of Scripture here and God, may it seek deep into the depths of our spirit and our soul, and may we, we understand more fully your gospel, more fully your call upon our lives, and God, more fully our purpose in this life you've given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We saw something like this back in chapter 2, a few weeks back. That chapter begins with the reminder that we used to be dead in our sins and our trespasses, following after the ways of the world and the temptations of Satan. 
Um, and we gave in to all of those things. Not because the world made us do it. Not because Satan coerced us to do it. No, we gave in because we were just offered things that we wanted to do. We gave in to the desires that were present in our hearts. And consequently, because of that natural bent toward sin, uh, the text said that we are enemies of God, subject to his punishment, along with, it says, everyone. All have sinned. So all of us are in that boat. That's pretty bad. But God, in, through, through Christ, in his mercy, intervened and saved us and brought us into his family as sons and daughters. And it said, elevated us to that place as his children. And in so being, the wording that Paul used here is that we are seated with him, that is with Christ, in the heavenly places. Imagine that picture. Imagine the throne of heaven. Imagine the standing of Jesus Christ. And we are elevated to that kind of place in God's sight. That's pretty incredible. And so the reason he did this, according to chapter 2, is so that in the ages to come, it says, he, meaning God, might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's a very powerful theological statement that basically means God saved you so that for all eternity from here going forward, he can use you to make a spectacle of just how good and loving and gracious he is. Imagine what that future looks like for us. And now compare these two eras of our lives, right? That B.C. versus A.D. From being enemies of God, objects of his wrath, to now being children of God, objects of his affection. From being trapped in darkness, fulfilling twisted desires, to now being made alive and seated in the heavenly places with Christ. One of these is far greater than the other. It's along these lines that Paul reasons in today's passage, in chapter 4. And there are three major things he offers for us to consider. And here's the first one. The first is a call to leave your old life behind. Leave your old life behind. The passage begins with an urgency to no longer walk as it says the Gentiles do. This isn't about ethnicity, though. This isn't about being Jewish or non-Jewish. This is really about being in Christ or not, being a child of God or not, being among the people of God or not. Don't walk as those who do not belong to the people of God. He highlights how people who have, been, who have not been transformed by the Holy Spirit relate to God. And he says that they live in the futility of their minds. Futility is an important word, so keep that in mind. Futility of their minds. And living that way, operating that way, being in that, that, that state, it leads to darkened understanding, he says, alienation from God, hardness of heart, callousness, and surrendering to greed and sensuality. It sounds pretty bleak. Like, it sounds really bad. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, all of this is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Now, I think it's important to address an elephant in the room right now. There are plenty of people who are absolutely happy with their lives, who are not Christians. A lot of the time, I think we make the mistake of believing that people who aren't Christians are out there and they're just wandering aimlessly and they're miserable and they hate everything and they're drifting without any sense of purpose. And that's simply not true for many people. No, humans are actually really good at finding meaning and purpose in their lives. I'm a hospital chaplain. That's my, that's my job. And so a big part of my job is having conversations with people. All kinds of people. People who, of course, share my faith. People who I have great fellowship with. When I go visit them, we pray together, and it's just a sweet time. And then a lot of people who don't share my faith at all. Maybe they have a different faith. Maybe they have no faith. 
And you know what's interesting? A lot of them are finding meaning and purpose in their journey, even as they go through some of the most difficult and profoundly you know, unimaginable experiences you could think of. And they find purpose and meaning in it. Now, maybe you're here today, or maybe you're listening to this as a podcast or watching online, and you don't consider yourself a Christian, but nonetheless, you feel like you're happy in your life. And what about people who are not Christians, but are nonetheless genuinely lovely and kind people? You know, all of us have met someone like that. Maybe you are someone like that. You know, we know that person who sometimes we think, man, they're way kinder than a lot of the Christians I know. You know what I'm talking about? My neighbors growing up next door, they were the kindest, loveliest people, generous. We had this raspberry bush that grew from their yard into our yard, and we'd steal raspberries all the time, and they were just so warm and hospitable, and they'd invite us over for, you know, to their house, and they'd show us slideshows of their, you know, they had, you know, they had slideshows, projectors back in the 90s, and they show us these videos of their, their travel. They did a lot of international traveling. Lovely people. I'll never forget them. They were not followers of Jesus, but some of the kindest people I've ever known. We all know people like that. Maybe you have been burned by people who do call themselves Christians. Some of the worst things we've heard about in recent years, sex scandals, abuse, all kinds of things came at the hands of churches and people in the church, even leadership in churches. There's plenty of evil inside the house, in other words. Or maybe you're a Christian and you just really personally struggle with feeling that sense of fulfillment and happiness that you feel like Christians ought to experience. You know, you've place your faith in Jesus, you checked all those boxes, but nonetheless, you just don't get the sense that you're experiencing all that you should be. Now, it's crucial to understand that Lewis here is not claiming that every non-believer is miserable in their life, nor is he claiming that every Christian is perfectly content and happy and a good person. That's not, that's not the point. His point is that the troubles that we witness in this world stem from people, whether Christian or not, who are pursuing their own desires and greed rather than submitting to God, who is the true source of joy and satisfaction. And here in Ephesians 4, this is what Paul means by futile, futility of their minds, following after our own greed and desires to a great or lesser degree, rather than following God on the path of life that he has set out for us, means we are not living up to the purpose for which we were created. We were created to know God and enjoy him forever. J.I. Packer um, great theologian, wrote the following. He says, what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person does. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal could there be than to know God? And we see where this futility goes in the world around us, this chasing after things that are not the things for which we were made. It leads to the brokenness we see in all the negative effects that Lewis pointed out. And it increasingly pulls the individual away from the peace that comes with the life that God has offered us in Christ. The progression, according to the text here, goes something like this. Walking in the futility of our minds darkens our understanding, which leads to hardness of heart, which makes us ignorant and alienates us from the path God has for us, which causes us to become callous, which leads, to, to, leads us to sink deeper into sin. It's this downward spiral where our greed and desires cause us to make more and more decisions that we may not have thought possible way back when. The point here isn't that everyone who doesn't follow Jesus will become a thief or a murderer. The point is that apart from the grace of God, anyone, believers most certainly included, is capable of great evil because we are bent toward it. And the message Paul wants his believing audience to hear is that it is possible for, for them to also go to terrible places 
and continue, if they continue to walk as those who do not believe. And here's the deeper point. The deeper point here isn't about avoiding becoming the worst version of ourselves. The deeper point is that apart from Christ, we are missing out on the meaning for our own existence. So it's futile. It's futile because we have so much more we're offered. As recipients of grace, why go back to that way of thinking and living? When we have been offered this new life and been introduced to the purpose for which we were made, right? Like we are no longer darkened in our understanding, so we need not experience hardness of heart. We are not ignorant of the things of God, so we can follow the path God has for us. If we're on God's path by grace, we can avoid becoming callous and instead pursue holiness. And so Paul's follow-up instructions are pretty obvious. You know, first he said, leave your old self behind, leave that, leave that old life behind. And instead, he says, to embrace your new life in Christ. Really obvious. Really hard to do. It's summertime in Georgia, all right? And we all know how hot and humid it gets out there. Even a short walk from the car to the house will leave you drenched in sweat. And so the yard work is terrible, okay? I was out there yesterday with my wife. We were working in the yard. We did not accomplish everything we set out to do, but we got a lot done. Um, I gave up. I had more mowing to do. If you look at my backyard right now, it was like this high. And so half of it's like this high now and half of it's still this high. And it just looks awesome. But I'll get to it eventually. But you know how it is. You get, you get your you know, t-shirt, your shorts, you get out there, you get working, you do the weed eating, you pull the weeds, you, um, you know, do the mowing. If you're feeling fancy, you might do some leaf blowing action. Um, and then you go inside feeling three things, right? Accomplished, hopefully, very thirsty, obviously, and you feel absolutely disgusting, okay? So what do you do? You go, you take a shower, you change your clothes, to swap out the old clothes, nasty clothes for clean clothes, and then you can go about your time. Imagine like doing all that yard work, being all nasty, and then be like, all right, time to go out, and just getting in the car and going out for a date. Of course you wouldn't do that. That would be horrible. That would be gross. That would not be fun. Nobody would enjoy that. You got to swap out the old nasty stuff for the clean good stuff if you want to have a good time in that setting, right? That makes sense. Now, listen, that's a silly example in light of what we're talking about, but you get the point, right? Um, Paul says to put off the old self and all of the baggage that comes with it and to put on the new self and all of the blessing that comes with it. We've talked a lot about the spiritual blessings that come with being adopted as a son or daughter of Jesus Christ. Um, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. We have, according to um, earlier in the, in the book, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are seated with Christ. We are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit of God. We are not who we once were. To have that kind of standing and yet to live as though none of that ever happened is kind of ludicrous, right? Remember the children of Israel during the Exodus? They were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And then God miraculously intervenes. He saves them. He delivers them. And in the process, he casts judgment on their captors. And then they head off into the wilderness. And like God's presence is with them. They've already seen all he's done. So they know what he can do. They have that knowledge of the truth. But then they see his presence. You know, we, we know that he, he's present in the form of a pillar of fire by night and then the cloud of shade by day. And, and he, he's with them. He's guiding them. And then what happens? They run into some trouble. You know, some really scary trouble, you know, Let's not pretend it wasn't scary, but they've seen what has happened. They've seen what God, who God is. They've seen what he's done. And what do they say? They say things like, man, we had it so much better back when we were slaves. We just want to go back. Why did you bring us out here to die? It's silly. It's sad, but it's silly. When you read it, you're like, what are they talking about? What are they doing? Like, carry on in this incredible epic of a story that you are a part of. And yet they're like, no, I want to go back. But like, that's what we do. 
You know, we do a version of that. Every time we go back to the old self, having experienced all that's been offered to us in Christ, having been given all of these spiritual blessings and being recipients of all this grace, and we say, I, I think I liked that other thing I used to do. I think I liked that old way of life. And the reason Paul urges us as he does is because the pull to go back to Egypt is so universal. He even experienced it himself. Read his writings, read about his life. Look, he, he wasn't perfect. Like, he didn't do everything just right. He had his struggles, but God sustained him in that. None of us are above temptation. It's so easy to live as though that divine intervention never took place. Um, and so he's encouraging us, again, to wake up and see the glory that we're offered in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us what we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and to continue in the faith and on the path of righteousness. I mean, look at verse 24 here. It says, put on the, old, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We have the resources to follow Jesus this closely. We have the resources to do so. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to not look back at our old way of life and to see it as something that's a better option than following Jesus. We have the resources to see the folly in going down that path, right? Like Donald Duck waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. I can't believe I did that back in 2008. Like we have the resources and the power by the Holy Spirit to look back at the old self and say, wow, that was, fall that was folly. There was no nothing useful about that. Not that we need to be like in shame and embarrassed by the awkward stuff, you know, quote unquote, in our sin that we used to do. But we have the resources to see it as the folly that it is because the Holy Spirit empowers us to do so. We have the resources to live life that's holy after God's own likeness, according to these verses. If that's all true, and if we believe that to be true, and we surrender to it, our lives can be so much more than we tend to make of them. The old self drifting, drifts increasingly away from godliness, whereas the new self, we find, conforms us toward the righteousness and holiness of God. And of course, this has implications far beyond us as individuals, right? Um, there's this, this letter was written to the church at Ephesus, all the holy ones, all, all of the saints, not just some guy in Ephesus, right? This is to the body of Christ. Our individual surrender to Christ is um, certainly necessary for our salvation, right? And our, our walk with Jesus in repentance is necessary as we live our life in obedience as individuals to the calling which is placed on our lives. But it impacts far beyond just me. Impacts far beyond just you, the individual. Now, this is about the collective. This is about our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, living together as brothers and sisters. And to put a bow on this, this section of the letter in chapter 4, Paul shows us what walking with Christ does for our relationships with others. And so, first thing he said was, hey, leave the old self behind. Next thing he said was, hey, embrace your new life in Christ. And now, thirdly, he says, embrace your new family in Christ. Embrace your new family in Christ. This verse seems, these verses seem to shift a bit from what we've been looking at, you know, because it was all about individual, like you do these things, don't do these things, your new self versus old self. Um, but really, it actually makes a lot of sense when you think about what he's saying here. The, to this point, the focus has been on personal relationship with God. You know, before coming to faith, you, you know, you were in sin, so-and-so, such-and-such. Now you're in Christ. It's time to put on the new self. And now he starts talking about the other people in your life. And follow the logic. The old self, as we have read, is very self-centered. The new self, as we are going to read here and understand here, um, are, is others-centered. So from old self, self-centered to new self, others-centered. Notice how he describes the faith community here in, chapter, in verse 25. He says this. He says, we are members of one another. We are members of one another. The call, the, the call to Christian unity, as we heard Abner preach about last week when he opened up chapter 4 for us, um, is a very high calling. Christ died to bring us into his body. 
the church. Christ died to bring us into his body, the church. We're so used to hearing the language of our theology that like hearing that someone died for us isn't that big of a deal usually. Because I just said someone died and like none of us were like, whoa, yeah, that's true, that's wild. Like, because we're so used to hearing it, you know? So let's hear it, you know, let's think about it. Let's consider it for what it is, that Christ died for us. Someone died for us. That's big in and of itself. But now consider who died for us. God in the flesh. The second person of the Godhead came down and died to benefit us and to accomplish things on our behalf. That's a huge statement if we just think about it for like a minute. And what did he die for? Well, we know he died to save us from our sins, but there's more to it. One of the reasons he died for us is to bring us into his body, to bring us into his church, to make us brothers and sisters. He died to purchase this unity that we're called to. So how important must this unity be? It's so important. And it makes sense for unity to be so important to our Christian lives, doesn't it? Like we need each other. We need each other to do this. If we're each so prone to wandering, as the hymn says, and as this passage shows, then we need the support of one another to, as Hebrews 10 says, hold fast our confession, to hold on to what we say we believe. I need to speak the truth of the gospel to you over and over again, because you will experience things and temptations which will cause you to take your attention off of all these truths that we're talking about that we know and be drawn back to the old self. I need to do that for you. And in return, I need you to speak the truth of the gospel in love to me over and over again because I will have temptations and things come into my life which will cause me to take my attention off of these truths that I know and be drawn back to the old self. And Mike needs it, and Brandon needs it, and Elizabeth needs it, and your, your elders need it, like, like Mitchell and Bo. Like we all, everybody needs, everybody needs us to be doing that for each other because we will all be tempted to go back to the old self. We all need each other. We are members of one another. And here's the really cool thing about this reversal, right? From being self-centered to other-centered. The really cool thing about it is that if I and all of your brothers and sisters are looking out for you, and if you and all of my brothers and sisters are looking out for me, that means that you and I don't have to worry about ourselves. We have so much coverage. If it was just me looking out for myself and you looking out for yourself, that's just one person. You got all these, but we have this whole community surrounding us to carry us and to encourage us and to push us and to, to edify us and to build us up. Like that's what we're offered in Christian community. And that is one of the main reasons why Jesus died to bring us into his family so that we have this body around us to propel us forward in service and devotion to him. We're members of one another. And what that unity looks like is laid out here very, very clearly. Work out your differences with love and grace in mind. That's really what Paul's getting at here in these verses. We are told not to allow our desires to give way to sin. There's this warning about not giving opportunity to the devil, which sounds pretty scary, okay? Like, like that's in there. Don't give opportunity to the devil. That must mean that there's something really important happening here. Remember, Satan's a master at offering temptation that speaks effectively to the old self. And so he gives this example. He says, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry, but do not sin. See, anger, like all of our emotions, are God-given. They're not bad. They serve a purpose. Uh, Jesus had emotions. Let me see that. Like, okay, emotions aren't bad, but because of our old self, these things have a tendency to be twisted and go into bad directions. So our anger, which God is angry, God's anger, anger towards sin is talked about in chapter two. Like anger is there, it's good, it has its purpose, but it has this ability to be twisted. 
and turn us and have us go in ways that we should not go. And even as people who are living the new life in Christ, we can allow our anger and frustrations to draw us back. That's one example of many. Um, there is a connection between Holy Spirit-empowered love for others and not allowing our old self to drive us to sin. Holy Spirit-empowered love is necessary for us to leave the old self behind and embrace the new self when it comes to our Christian community. In verse 28, he uses an example of a thief. Rather than, rather than do as he or she has done in the past, right, using hands to, to steal, to take, the thief is called on to abandon that practice of using their hands to take from others in favor of using their hands to produce things for others, to benefit others, to help others. Rather than allowing desires and greed to harm others, love leads us to use what we have to bless others. Now, the part I really struggle with is verse 29 here. Um, this may be a familiar verse for some of you. Um, when I was younger, like in youth group, this was like a proof text for not cussing. It was like, hey, you know, Ephesians 4.29 says, don't cuss, right? And I'd be like, oh, I'm glad I don't cuss because that's a big deal. Um, but I think that interpretation is missing the point. Um, sure, we should generally clean up our vocabulary. I mean, by all means, don't, don't cuss. But Paul's not talking about four-letter words here. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the purpose and intention behind our speech toward others. What are we doing when we talk to people as Christians? Why are we saying what we're saying? What's the purpose and point behind what we are offering to people? If our old self was concerned with building ourselves up at the expense of others, maybe using our words to build ourselves up and tear others down, make ourselves feel better, hurt others, lie about someone, gossip about someone, whatever it is. If our old self is concerned with self-centeredness, the new self being concerned for the betterment of others is then called on to use their words to benefit others. It's all for mutual support, being able to embrace the new self. We need each other to build one another up by speaking gospel truth and love to each other. Like, I'll probably fail to leave the old self behind all the time if it's just me on my own. I'm not saying it's impossible for some isolated Christian to be faithful to Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, like, I know myself. Like, I need the encouragement of others. And God gives me the benefit of a faith community that allows me to have that encouragement. The support of the gospel community, I will have the encouragement that helps me to resist temptation and embrace this way of godliness. Like I said, I, I struggle with this, you know, verse 29 stuff. Not because I, I cuss all the time, but because I'm really sarcastic. And I really like to get the last word in, and I can come up with, I'm, I'm, I'm good at it. Like, I'm really good at it. I, I can produce some really bitey words. I can be really mean. I really can. Um, I can be snarky. I enjoy it, actually, a lot of the time. It makes me feel good. Um, and I've said and I have tweeted um, many things that were not life-giving. And the call here in Ephesians 4 is to use our words to benefit the people who hear them. There are times when we have to share hard truths with people, things that people don't want to hear. That's a lot different than intentionally using our words to harm people, though. Use your words to speak life into the people around you. Gospel truths that build people up and remind them of the calling that's placed on us and the spiritual blessings that we've been offered in Christ and all of our standing as his sons and daughters elevated to the place of his beloved ones. That's what we can do. We can use our words to build people up in that way. So use your words to do so. Use your words to remind each other of the gospel and who we are in Christ. Some things are better left unsaid and untweeted, by the way, unposted. Facebook, too. There's a lot of stuff we post that we shouldn't. Make the most of your words. 
Unless we think this isn't a big deal, verse 30 really makes it clear how big of a deal this is, saying our actions and our words toward our brothers and sisters can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is no small thing. Remember in Ephesians 1, it says that we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In part, what that tells us is that God's presence is always with us. God is always with us as Christians. So far be it from us to bear the presence of God and harm others. God takes that personally. The final two verses tie this whole passage together nicely. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So what does it look like to put off the old self? Well, in gospel community, it looks like putting away the parts of ourselves that bring harm to others. And what does it look like to put on the new self? In gospel community, it looks like the sort of love and grace that God has shown us through Jesus Christ, sacrificial love that we don't deserve. So the question this morning is pretty simple, I think. Am I living self-centered or others-centered? Remember, the old self, it's about me. And there are varying degrees of what that looks like, very lovely people and also very monstrous people, okay? hardened criminals, and my neighbors growing up. But what does it look like to, not, to live in the futility of our minds where we're not living for Jesus, the high calling on our lives? The old self has a tendency to be self-centered, whereas the new self is called on and empowered to be other-centered. So am I living self-centered or other-centered? Another way of asking that would be, am I living in Christ or in the past? In order to truly live in a way that puts others before ourselves, according to what we see here, we have to have our eyes on Jesus because he is the example that we are following when we love others in the manner that these verses are calling us to. And in order to do that, we have to live in daily repentance. Fancy word, fancy church word. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. And repentance is the idea of turning away from, the, from one thing in order to face something else. So the old way of life, the things that I, my, my, my mind and my body desire— versus the new self, you know, turning from the old way to the new way, repentance. Um, it's the idea of turning away. We will find ourselves constantly drawn back to the old self. It's, it's our first nature, after all. Why wouldn't we be pulled back to it? And that's why this passage and others like it exist in the Bible. We will struggle in our walk with Christ. But hear that as the hopeful truth that it is. You will struggle in your walk with Christ. And what that tells us is that you're not alone. You're not alone. And God understands your struggle, is what we understand from this. And we know that God is gracious to all of us in that struggle. And he invites us to turn back to the path he has for us each and every time we find ourselves straying. Have you allowed your anger to give way to sin against another person? Have your desires and greed led you to harm others or to fall into some kind of secret personal sin? Have you been a jerk online? I have. And God forgives And the Holy Spirit empowers us to overcome temptation in order to live according to the calling we have received as God's holy ones, his saints. And with repentance comes making things right with those we've harmed. And so this morning you may need to ask, is there someone the Holy Spirit is telling me I need to ask for forgiveness? Is there some way I need to make amends with someone that I've harmed? Have you used your words to speak gospel truths to people around you? Or have you taken for granted that, you know, that's not as important as it really is? So maybe today you need to ask, hey, who, who do I need to encourage with this good news? Who do I need to speak this truth to in my faith community? 
And then perhaps you may be here having never put on the new self because you've never believed in Jesus. But today you're curious about that invitation to receive a new life in Christ. Maybe you're done living in the futility of your mind and you desire to understand what you were really created for. Jesus offers that new life to anyone who comes to him. You can become part of Jesus' family today. And after service, someone will be down here at the next step table and they'd love to talk to you about what that means for you. The reality is Jesus died for us. May each of us understand that truth in the depths of our souls and then live each day as though we believe it to be true. Let us pray. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.